And that's what I'm trying to push with people at the moment around the idea of operable software, because if we take the tools that you use in production and make them as useful in your development pipeline, then what we end up with is a much smoother flow and lack of that context switch. Because, well, if I want to know whether the database is hit, well, I use the observability um, data that I've just got out of the back end. Well, if I want to see it on production, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Hi, I'm Liz Fong-Jones. I'm Charity Majors. And I'm Jessica Kerr. And you're listening to Observability Cast, or Ollicast for short, a fortnightly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups bring our developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's at O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. So I'd say that my favorite client was uh, more to do with the constraints that they provided, which was using Azure pass functions rather than just plain compute, which brings in some really interesting challenges around how do you scale this? How do you work with those constraints? What is it useful for? What is it not useful for? Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to do things at a massive scale with pure Azure Pass, which was a really nice angle to throw at a, um, a very complex problem that they had anyway, and trying to run that in a constrained environment where you don't have access to, say, the runtime um, that you would um, in a normal application. So using things like Azure Functions, using things like um, Azure App Service, and just piecing all of that together and trying to do that in a secure and scalable way was really, really interesting. Mm. And when we're talking about a pass, what are kind of the key elements that are that are important there. You mentioned not having control over the runtime, so that means no virtual machines. Um, is this just uh, pure functions, or is this also other self-managed uh, other, uh, things? Yeah, so I mean, you, obviously Azure Functions is the, the functions as a service type thing where you don't get access to a lot of that runtime. It's very, very constrained to the point where you don't even control the, the end request and response. Um, so you can't stop the response from coming back, for instance, which is, which is really interesting. But it's also so basically any service where you're not going to be able to really access that raw machine, that raw compute, where it does everything for you. So app service, for instance, you tell it to scale. You say, I want five of these, and you just give it your code and it runs it. Very similar to the sort of Heroku type environments, as opposed to running it in the sort of traditional VMs, but also very different to running it in scaled containers like ECS and um, Fargate type things. Everybody is ops nowadays. <laughs> this feels like a good time for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, so my name's Martin Thwaites. I go by martin.net on Twitter. I'm a developer advocate at Honeycomb, I'm focusing on the developer side of observability and predominantly sort of .NET and Azure and um, all of those kind of things. Yeah, Welcome to Honeycomb, Martin. Thank you very much. Um, and we uh, we hope to have you as a host moving forward on this occasionally. 
as a long-time listener, first-time guest, um, it is would be a pleasure um, to do that. And obviously, amazing to be at Honeycomb after spending so many years on the outside trying to um, bring .NET to Honeycomb and obviously maintaining that library for so many years. That's true. We first heard from Martin. So we started the company in first of 2016. Pretty sure we heard from Martin like, early 2017 like it was early on nobody was paying attention to us and martin was like hey guys (laughs) (laughs) yeah you need some dot net (laughs) (laughs) i mean recently i was going back through one of my um one of my talks i gave back in sort of 2017 and right at the end of my talk where i was talking about logging and metrics and um just getting into sort of observability and right at the end of one of my talks um i threw a, a slide at the end just saying i found this company called honeycomb and i think they're the future of observability and they're doing this thing called events and it's high performance and all of this kind of stuff um and yeah to see that sort of 5 years ago to to sort of being here now is a massive journey. That's amazing. So I think that kind of weaves in these two threads together, right? That we were talking earlier about the idea of uh, having situations that might be challenging to traditionally monitor. And then there you were, you found Honeycomb and you realized maybe that you needed to com- like bring those two things together, right? Yeah. So, I mean, at the time I was working for Manchester Airport and we were working on systems where we had... Um, a, a very, very high load at the time. Well, high load to us, um, obviously. <laughs> Some people may not say high load, but it was high load to us. And trying to understand how do we throw things into, at the time we were using Elasticsearch and doing structured logging, but struggling to see the sort of performance stuff, bringing that into Honeycomb was like that really interesting oh, we can we can do some really interesting things with graphing this out at scale and looking at these things like high cardinality at the time, which was just a revelation to being able to see really in-depth what was going on with the different requests. I think the first thing I actually ended up doing was ingesting um, application load balancer logs via S3 and using triggers in S3 buckets for blobs and, and just pushing that into Honeycomb and just seeing all of this stuff come down. It was just amazing to see the difference between that yeah. and just dropping structured logs in. What had you been using before using events? What kind of instrumentation? And um, I, I would say before that, it was Elasticsearch and Serilog, which is the sort of de facto standard in .NET for, for logging and using that to produce structured logs, throwing them into Elasticsearch, trying to provide some sort of faceting and stuff through Kibana to, at the time which was, it was useful. It was really good. It was a step above nothing. It was a step above taking the logs off the server and trying to work out what was going on. It was that sort of leveling up a little bit. Right. That distance though, between leveling up from nothing to Elasticsearch and showing structured logs to taking those events and doing an event per request at the time and throwing all of that data on and leveling up into Honeycomb And then being able to do all of those metrics in blazing speed at the time. You know, this was a difference of seconds to milliseconds of running these queries. It was just night and day in what you could see as a um, being able to see it. The other thing was the fact that we were using logging pipelines. 
we were taking logs. We weren't sending them straight to our backends. We weren't sending them straight to Elasticsearch. It was going through Logstash. It was going through that pipeline, which meant that it took minutes for you to be able to see that data. Mm. So that to me was that mind blown moment. That's so frustrating, especially when you're trying to debug something in production and you make a change and then you wait. <laughs> you make a change and then you wait like three minutes, five minutes. And it's just like, ah, no wonder people SSH into boxes and tail logs because it's just so infuriating to have to wait for your telemetry to catch up. And that's a scary time. It's like the, you're there going, did I do it right? Did I just take yeah. the server offline yeah. because I've not got the logs through? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's it's really nerve wracking. And when I speak to people, when I start showing them the things in Honeycomb, and they start comparing it to other tools, and they look at it and go, oh, oh, it's, it's there now. And they, they kind of don't believe it's there. <laughs> we forget about the speed because it, it, you just get used to it, and it stops being something that you think about. Oh, yeah, it's going to be available instantly. Why, why would it not be? And it's always funny to watch other people go, what? <laughs> oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, and you start to take that into, say, the, the Azure password, where... People are just ingrained into them that, well, yeah, you do the request and then you wait a few minutes. So you do the request and then you wait a few minutes. Trying to take them into that world where that is that is abnormal and something's wrong if that happens. Yeah. And you show them it and they just don't believe it. Yeah. That, that development experience where you run the code and the response comes back too quickly that you don't believe that it did the thing that you expected it to do. Yeah. And you spend so much time trying to work out why it came back so quickly. And actually, oh, it was because you wrote the code so well. <laughs> you spend so much time talking and, and thinking about you know, operable software and production software. And, I, and it's great because like, you know, I think you and I think about a lot of the same things, but I come from, you know, much more the operational side, you come from the development side, but like, I feel like it is underappreciated just how much getting that cycle is short and is tight. And it's, it's partly the responsiveness of your tool. It's partly making it so that your, your software is being auto deployed within a few minutes. You know, like we don't yet have the glorious future of say a dark lane where you're literally writing code, you know, and saving the file on production as you're building it, you know, but, but you can, you, if you can get a, a nice loop in there where you're instrumenting your code as you go, right. And you merge your code up to main. And then within a few minutes, you're looking at it in production. You still got all that context in your head. You, you know, you still, you, everything you're trying to do is fresh and you can just poke through the instrumentation that you just wrote. And it's like, it's an entirely different occupation than the prospect of writing software and then just shipping it off into the great unknown. And then at some point in the next day, week, month, or whatever, your code goes live, but you're completely detached from it, right? Like yeah. something breaks, it goes into a ticket. Like you're not really, <laughs> okay, you're a software engineer, but it's, it's that context switch. Yeah, that context switch is brutal. And it's not just the context switch of tasks. It's not just the context switch of develop feature A, then develop feature B. It's the context switch of when you're using a debugger in your local development flow, you you hit the big play button. And as .NET developers, and I've, I've been one for many years, we love the big green play button inside uh -huh. of um, Visual Studio. You hit play, it throws you a, um, a debug line and that you can just sort of step through all of your code. And then all of a sudden you go to production and you don't have that. Mm. And you say, well, how do I know what happened? How do I find out that this particular 
function was called? How do I find out that this database was was updated? Right. And that's what I'm trying to push with people at the moment around the idea of operable software. Because if we take the tools that you use in production and make them as useful in your development pipeline, yeah, then what we end up with is a much smoother flow and lack of that context switch. Because, well, if I want to know whether the database is hit, well, I, I use the observability um, data that I've just got out of the back end. Well, if I want to see it on production, I'm doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. I really, really love this, right? Like it's this thing about how we can make our systems more humane for people to run if they have the right context and they already know how to go about it. Yeah. 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 And that's the thing. If it's if it's ingrained in developers that this is how I work, well, all of a sudden production doesn't become scary. It's just another one of my environments that I work on. Exactly. And, and I can just, I can do what in production I do locally. Well, I don't care about being on call. I don't care about being given that production issue because, well, it's just the same as a bug. Well, I'll use the same tools. I'll tr- look through my trace logs. I'll look through all the uh, the metrics and say, oh yeah, there was a big spike. And <laughs> It's just amazing. <laughs> so much, yes. But it's, it's the context switch that, I, that all developers hate. And if we can stop the context switch and make it faster, yeah. like you said, if we can get it so that you deploy fast as well as using the same tools. The thing is that like people are always like, yeah, but that's only for like Google's and fa- the really good engineers. Like you got to be so good to like write code this way. And it's like, that's exactly the opposite. It is so much easier to write and ship code this way you know it's it's so much easier it's you have to keep less context in your head you get to like it's it's like i mean the idea of like you know just (laughs) if you ran your code and you had to wait three days to see the output whether it failed or not like oh please don't let us go back to that that would be so (laughs) much harder right it's so much easier. And, and the, the idea that, like, you know, it's hard to get, get it so that you can, you know, deploy your code quickly, all these things. These are just symptoms, you know, like getting your tests down so that they run, you know, in, in minutes instead of hours, getting your, your deploy stuff down, you know, adding guardrails. Like, these are not hard things to do. If teams can write unit tests, if teams can write tests, they can do this, right? Yeah. It's it's mostly people lacking the confidence in themselves and lacking the, they just don't believe they can do it. And so they don't do it. So they're right. They can't do it. But but if they just did it. <laughs> I believe, therefore I am not. It. <laughs> right, exactly. I don't believe, therefore I do not. Uh, <laughs> but if they just did it, and, and this is why, you know, people are always asking me, how do you affect this change? How do you take a team that isn't used to working this way and get it so that they, they, they work this way? And like, honestly, most of the time that I see this happen, it only happens because someone joins the team who has worked this way before and they know it's not hard. They know it can be done and they're unwilling to work any other way, quite frankly. And so it's the stubborn people. The stubborn people are the ones that change the world. (laughs) Well, it's the people who have experienced it this way and they know how much they don't want to go back to wasting so much time and having to do it the hard way. And so they start pulling their team into the future because they know how much easier it is. Yeah. And I think there's there's a certain element of those people who have worked that way generally end up being more elevated through their career. Therefore, they get more, when they go into those new organizations, yeah. they have a bit more power. Yeah. They have a bit more influence. You learn more faster. You, you're more productive. You get to do more of the fun stuff of, of engineering. 
which means that you become, you know, a far better engineer much faster than if you were doing it the old way. Like it's just this, this incredible feedback loop, or as they call it on the GTM side, the flywheel, right? <laughs> Where it, everything accelerates everything else. And it's just, it's a whole, it's a whole different universe. Yeah. I've, I've equated this recently to the movement around TDD. So yeah. the whole idea of go slow to go fast, the idea of, well, if I write my tests, I can actually go faster because I have more confidence in my code. Yes, I think we're in the same mode with pulling observability back into that development flow. Yeah, Because if I do all those things and I do them in the same way that I used to do TDD, for instance, I do them as part of my development flow. I use them yes. to help architect my platform by using that observability. Actually, when you go onto production, you've got less issues. And maybe all those issues that you do get, they're easier to diagnose. So actually, you get less support. Like you say, it's that that flywheel then of things just become easier and easier and easier. And I think if we start to think about those problems that we had trying to introduce TDD to organizations, where we mm. we had to um, we had to hide the fact that we were doing TDD because people <laughs> were saying, no, no, you shouldn't be doing unit tests. Um, don't spend time doing unit tests. You need to do features. I need features. Oh, the the testing's wow. for the QA team to do. You don't need to write tests. That That's does what... sound familiar. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's the, the nightmares that um, I still have occasionally. I wasn't around for those conversations. That's fascinating. Yeah. And that, you know, this is where we used to be that, well, we have a QA team that does all these things. Well, <laughs> okay, well, we've got an SRE team that does all of the production monitoring stuff. Well, no, no, that shouldn't be the way it is. Right. You should care about that production. The whole DevOps movement was around this idea of you don't throw it over the wall. You don't wait for somebody else to do it. Because if you do that, what you end up with is no internal visibility. Because, well, I don't care about it as a developer. I've got my debugger. I've got my debugger. I can hit play yeah. and I can see what's going on. Yeah. Um, but the ops team don't. I can prove my code is correct. <laughs> yes, because I can step through the code and it passed this to that function. Therefore, that's good. Yeah. And then you've got the ops team are then going, well, I need to know this information because I need to know whether when I need to scale the servers. I need to know where the bottlenecks are. Is it the database? Is it the, the caching? Is it this? Is it that? And you'd never get it. And that obviously bringing those two teams together in the DevOps movement allowed us to be able to say, actually, no, the the developers are adding more information, which makes the ops team happier because there's less issues. It means there's less tension between those two teams. Well, what if we can do that with observability? What if we can bring that observability inside that development pipeline so that actually the developers value that observability more than they value their debugger? Because they see it, because it makes their jobs easier too, right? Like. The, the DevOps movement, I think of as the, it's the solution to the original sin, which was when we split up DevOps in the first place. Like that should never have happened. It's like saying, okay, this is the person that's going to cook the food and that's the person that's going to eat the food and, and they're just going to be too complete. You can't taste what you're eating, right? We've got the taster and the cooker, but you can't, they've got to be two separate people, right? Like, and now it's like, okay. I love that. I love that. <laughs> Because then the, the the chef is putting way too much salt in it because they like salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like and like three days later, someone is tasting it and going, "What the fuck?" So they file a Jira task and they're like, "Too much salt in the soup." And the chef is like, "What soup? I'm not. I'm on to like shortbread now or something." <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's ridiculous, right? Why would you ever split those things up, right? There can be specializations, right? There. Are, QA teams that specialize in this stuff and there are organizations where you need that. 
there are always going to be people who specialize in operability and in operations because these are really fucking complex systems and they require, you know, we're not saying that developers have to be an expert in everything. You don't have to be the world's best QA person, the world's best SRE and the world's best developer, but you have to know enough of these skills in order to do your job well. And knowing these skills makes it easier to do a better job. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think these there's a lot in the in the recruitment space at the moment where they they advertise for somebody who has all of those skills that is the entire department of things right where what you really want is somebody who's pretty good at most of those things who yeah. is has an understanding of those things but then people who specialize in those things that work as consultants. So it's not as a, I mean, QA is the prime example. When I go into organizations um, to talk about how to change, how to embrace things like agile and start to do things like continuous delivery and all of those good things that are on this flywheel that we were just talking about. When I go in, it's all about saying, right, well, let's not put a gate in. Let's not put a, a QA team in place that says, I'm going to be the gate. I'm going to make sure that you don't do things wrong. Don't put an ops team as a gate in there that says, well, yeah. I'm going to make sure that the deployment is correct. What you need is those people to advise the developers on the ways to do things better yeah. so that these people who are actually good at what they do can get that expert advice Testing is a completely different mindset. Yeah. Having that mindset of something that I want to be pedantic, I want to be able to break things, I want to, be able to say, well, what about on a Tuesday when it's raining outside? The different mindsets, the engineering mindset to do infrastructure is different to the engineering mindset of building applications. So yeah. use those people for what they're good at and pass the yeah. expertise back into the teams. Yeah. And that's a much, much better way to scale your teams. It's, it's like saying, you know, like I think that every engineer, certainly every engineer who calls himself a senior engineer, should be able to answer the question, after you merge your code, where does it go? Like, how does it get deployed? How does it get out there? Like, and if, and if something broke, like, how would you go about debugging it, right? Like, everybody should know how to do that. But that doesn't mean that, you have to write the entire deploy system or be an expert in it. You just have to know how to navigate. You just have to know how to find the answers that you need in order to do your job. Yeah. If you're fixing a bug and you don't know that your code has been deployed into a Kubernetes cluster yeah. and it's been three, it's you know, got a container that you didn't actually put in the commands yourself. You don't know what it's got on that container. You just go, oh, here's my code. It ran on my machine. You go and make it work. If you don't know the steps that it's going to take, the compile steps, the um, the way it's going to be deployed into production from a container or an app service and the, the past stuff that we're talking about, they're very different paradigms. That is part of your production code. <laughs> you can't separate the software from what it runs on. Yeah. And I've seen people who, especially, I mean, obviously I come from an Azure and .NET world. So Azure Pass is a really um, big thing in my community where people will run it on their local machine and it'll work. And then they'll run it on Pass, which has different restrictions around how it works. Yeah, And they don't understand that. They just say, well, it runs on a machine, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. And well, no, actually, though, there's a load bouncer in the front of that. What's the difference between like AWS versus the Azure uh, platform as a service? So there's a huge amount of commonality. So they they do both provide some services. In my experience, 
AWS is very, very, very good at infrastructure. They're very good at the raw compute type things. Yeah where they, they'll provide an EKS. Um, they'll provide you with that Kubernetes stuff to be able to run all your containers. They're really good at the virtual machines. Their networking is incredibly fast, all of that kind of stuff. But what they they don't provide as much of is that layer above, that abstraction above, which is where Azure places a lot of their time because they obviously came out of pandering towards the .NET developers. And for our sins, .NET developers are very, very behind the times with DevOps and yeah. all of that kind of stuff yeah. and owning production. We're very, very behind. So they pandered to those people by saying, well, you can just right-click deploy. Um, you can right-click in your IDE and you can then say, here's my app service. You go and work out what runtime needs to be on there. You go and patch my service for me. I don't want to do anything like that. Yeah. Um, you go and do all of those things for me. And that, to me, is the big difference between Azure and AWS yeah. because we've got this layer on top that abstracts all of those things away. I think it's the right level of abstraction. So we're not going to a point where you literally provide the uncompiled code and somebody else does the compilation and all of those things that go with it. It's a, a medium level abstraction, um, if you like, that is very, very good. Yeah. What are some of the uh, lessons you brought back from the very large, mature Azure community? I'm gonna have to have a think on that one. This is the question that came from uh, Rin. Rin, do you have a? Do you want to give us more detail? Yeah, I was just curious. This is Rin, by the way. Hi, I'm Rin. I'm Honeycomb Community Manager, um, and on a team with Martin and Charity. The reason that I wrote in with that question is that I'm really curious about sort of what your experiences have been as you've seen the Azure community grow and expand into a wider range of time zones and what you think we can learn from that as a Honeycomb community and as an observability and open telemetry community. So I think one of the interesting things that's happening in the Azure community is, and I think this is wider to .NET as well, really, is people moving towards the owning production thing. They're starting to understand that they can't just right-click deploy anymore. They can't um, do things that they used to be where you would do it straight from Visual Studio. Um, you would connect your Visual Studio to your Azure CLI and just deploy it. They're realizing that that isn't okay anymore. They're realizing that we need to put in CICD pipelines. We need to play a lot more with the deployments and testing and removing gates and not relying on somebody else to test our software, for somebody else to deploy our software, that we really need to understand really deep down how it runs. So you're saying that they're learning DevOps about 10 years later? Yes, I am absolutely saying that. And okay. I am one of those people. Gotcha, I, uh... gotcha. <laughs> what lessons do they have to teach us? Because I'm sure they, they, this is that way for a reason right? Yeah, I think there's a there's an element of handoff that is good. Yeah. So there's an element of saying this isn't, um, one of my favorite management books is The One Minute Manager's Guide to Monkey Management, where you've got so many monkeys on your back, <laughs> um, which is an amazing book. And it's really short um, because I don't like reading long things. <laughs> but it's the idea that if I've got so many things that I'm trying to worry about, then I struggle to do anything. And I think mm -hmm. the .NET development community went the opposite way with having no monkeys. And there's a lot more on people's plates now in the sort of environments that we're talking about today. Yeah. 
the they have too many things. So maybe there are more things that we can hand off that we don't need to care about, more things that we can abstract away totally. and use tools like um, the Azure community is very, very good at saying, I want Azure to provide me everything. Yeah, I want one place to go and get everything. I want Azure to manage everything for me. Whereas the AWS community is a lot more, no, I want to manage that. I want to understand the un- the internals of it. So I think that's that's really interesting that the Azure community is very good at saying, I want to hands things off, but not very good at taking things from other companies, which is another side to it. Can you define outside-in testing for us? Yes. Yeah, so we've been very good at doing unit testing or the, the mockest world of unit testing, where we take an individual class. We take a... Well, very good is perhaps overstating it, but we've been <laughs> all right. We've, we've given it a good old college try, as they say. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. But we've spent a lot of time on building out that really low-level testing where we take things down to a very, very small component. And we, we do a lot of testing of things that really don't need testing. Yeah. We'll yeah. test that when you call a method, it sets a property on a class. Awesome. That really didn't need to be there. Yeah. Outside-in testing is about taking this to the application or service level that you're trying to run. The idea of, well, if I pass in some data and I get out the right data, do I care what happened in the middle of that? Not really, because if all the time I'm passing in the right data and getting out the right data, everything in the middle, yeah. I can refactor the whole thing away. I can do it in one line of code. I can do it in 400 lines of code. I don't really care. And that is a talking to a lot of people outside of the .NET community. um, They're alarmed that people don't do it this way. They're like, well, that is what testing is, isn't it? So they believe that that is what everybody should be doing. And that was a bit of a revelation, which is why I started really investing in trying to do the education piece with people about how easy this is, especially in the .NET world, where we have the tools that are already built for us to do it. And the pushback I used to get was, well, I need to know things like the retries. So I've sent the data in and it got the right data out, but I need to know whether it retried properly. So, And that to me is where we can start to couple things like observability, because if you wanted to know that in your test, you're sure as hell going to want to know about it when it's in live that that retry happened. So why aren't we doing the observability side within that outside outside in testing? Right, right, right. If I had to choose between tests and observability, which I don't have to, and, and I'm glad for that, <laughs> right? You should have both. But if I had to pick one above the other, I would take observability every fucking day of the week. The unit testing, the those even the, even outside in testing yeah. will only tell you in the isolated environment that that thing worked. Exactly. And you know, obviously, testing in production, your customers are testing your product all day, every day. Yeah. So I prefer to know whether their tests are failing versus my ones that are failing in the pipeline. Exactly. But if we can start to use the same tests in both, Re- reality will beat uh, staging any day of the week. <laughs> well, I think we're about out of time. But Martin, uh, you now have office hours, right? How can people find you? I do. So on the Honeycomb website, we um, we have office hours for our um, developer advocates. Um, you can go on there, you can book some time with myself or uh, my colleagues to talk about anything. I, 
I will wax lyrical to you about Azure and <laughs> .NET and how we can make things better in development. If you couldn't tell, this is literally true. You will wax lyrical until you stop him. Yes, and I, I'm sure you will hit the stop button and I will still keep talking. Um, <laughs> so yes, you will have to put the phone down. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martin. And thanks, Ren, for the cameo. <laughs> we will talk to you all next time. That was a delightful conversation that I enjoyed and hope you did too. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.